Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Michael O'Shea, writer and director of The Transfiguration, a terrific new horror movie now making its way through theaters in North America. It's a creepy, intimate character study that riffs on classic and contemporary vampire movies, everything from Romero's Martin to Alfredson's Let the Right One In, to tell the story of a troubled boy who befriends a slightly older girl in Queens, New York. Mike Pick Heavenly Creatures, Peter Jackson's devastating 1994 psychodrama about Juliet Hume and Pauline Parker, two young girls in Christchurch, New Zealand, whose intense friendship led them to commit a horrifying act. Based on actual events, it was Jackson's first proper film after the splatstick triptych of Bad Taste, Meet the Feebles, and Brain Dead slash Dead Alive, and it served to declare both himself and partner Fran Walsh as far more than enthusiastic genre artists. They were both proper talents, as were their young stars Kate Winslet and Melanie Linsky, making their debuts as Juliet and Pauline. The movie landed like a grenade on the festival circuit, winning a silver line at Venice, the Metro Media Award at TIFF, and ultimately getting Jackson and Walsh their first Academy Award nomination for Best Original Screenplay. They lost to Pulp Fiction, but in fairness, anything would have. This is someone else's movie. I chose Heavenly Creatures because it was such an influential movie on me in my um, early 20s. Mm-hmm. And it actually has a lot of crossovers, to, in some ways, to the movie I made, which I didn't even understand necessarily. But um, I did again when I rewatched it. So I was looking for a film that I could speak about for... Um, for up to an hour, right? And um, I, you know, I, that was that's tough. Um, and I was considering some others. I was considering Martyrs. I was considering um, Sorcerer. And I have a lot of joy for Sorcerer. Um, but um, Heavenly Creatures, I saw at a younger point in my life, and um, I liked the idea of naming a film that I saw at a younger point in my life to kind of get discuss that. And you know, I feel like also films have more impact when you see them younger. Um, yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, like by my 30s, films were having less. I mean, the, actually, Martyrs. Um, but there's not a lot of movies that have that kind of poomph impact that, that they have when you see them from the age of like 12 to like. You know, I, I think I saw Heavenly Creatures when I was around. I'm going to date myself, but I saw it when I was around, I think, 22. Okay. But, but also, it was, I was close enough to my teen years that I could actually remember how good Heavenly Creatures gets it. Um, yeah. Heavenly Creatures get. I was a very disturbed teenager and heavenly creatures gets um being a disturbed teenager so well and i think it's because they use the journal entries and they really i think he really read those journal entries and tries to be true to those entries yeah um in a way like you know the thing about being a teenager that you know you kind of forget and maybe you try to forget is you feel everything so intensely like yeah. everything is the most dramatic, important thing that will ever happen in this world. Like, and you know, you don't have any embarrassment about how intensely you feel things. Right. Well, you don't. I mean, when you're a kid, you don't know, right? Like, you don't know what the top is. You don't know where the levels are. Right. Everything is. Yeah. Everything is super saturated, and, and the colors are more bright, and the music is better, and, and you you feel more profoundly, even if you probably shouldn't. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, Heavenly Creatures really captures that. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, and, and also, you know, First Love is, yeah. you know, just like a first, yeah, the music you listen to has such a profound impact and the first person you fall in love with, the first person you have sex with. Just these things make enormous, you know, earth shattering impacts. Yeah. And um, they feel so, you know, I mean, I remember getting over you know, one of my first relationships and part of what upset me so much was this idea that I probably won't let myself feel this much again. Right. Like I was so raw and open in that relationship because, and I I could feel it. I could feel in getting over it and surviving the relationship. I could feel this idea of a kind of crust is going to come over me and I'm not going to feel this crazily strongly again about someone. Right. Um, but I mean, there's deeper le- levels and layers of love than adolescent love. Like, right. you know, like yeah, you have no frame of reference Like right. when you're that, when you're that young, you really, everything is happening for the first time. Yeah. And, but that rawness, that's, you know, that's what heavenly creatures, um, 
delivers for me and that, that I, back when I was like 22 or 23, that was something that I um, really, really remembered from being 14 um, yeah. and being a, you know, a crazy 14 year old. Um, and uh, I just, I just remembered back then. Yeah, I'm doing the math and I think I was fall of 94. I think I was 26. It's the kind of thing that you recognize and maybe with a little bit of humiliation kind of connect to, knowing that we were all capable of, of that level of, of intensity. I okay. think, and I think that's what Jackson and, and Fran Walsh get so perfectly, too, is the the logic, the, the idea that this is all just perfectly normal. If you follow these impulses and these rushes to their natural conclusion, then it can only end horribly. Because every because they're being they're being told constantly what is right and what is wrong for them, what situations are appropriate for them to be uh, together in, and, and how then they can't be together, and how they can only really uh, share fantasies. They can't act on them, and so with all of this opposition, then the urge to rebel just turns into something much darker. I think. I, I mean. It, well, it's funny the uh, the wealthy the wealthy parents who are sort of you know the bad guys. I mean, what well, something really brave the film does mm-hmm. is the film very much decides we're in the two kids' point of view, yeah, and we're in their reality. And I mean, and the fact is, this is a movie about sociopathic and not social. I mean, they're not sociopathic because they're too young. But th- these are people that are going to commit a brutal murder at the end of the movie and we're going to see it right. which is we'll get to that later yeah. but I mean you know they're going to commit this brutal horrible murder and we are we are not going to be distanced from them we're going to be literally like almost at a videodrome level in their point of view so much so that the adults all have you know the adults all to me feel like Boz Lerman adults a little or uh, you know yeah. I mean uh, they, they have this kind of exaggeratedness to them a little bit the teachers obviously he got the, he got the lady from Dead Alive right, yeah. to be one of the teachers like and that's I think partially because we're so in their point of view that adults do feel like our caricature like you know they're the only real humans in the world they're right. the only people that feel yeah, um, yeah it's like an articulation of the idea that no one understands them because they're alien they're completely apart from everybody else and there's no like they have no time for other people their age either right I don't even remember I mean you're just trying to wa- watching it and trying to think oh there really aren't any other young people in this movie they just isolate themselves so quickly from their peer group yeah there's the creepily older guy that has that has sex with uh, with uh, he kind of is an adult too actually he's not yeah, really more or less yeah and he's not a kid I mean, so yes, I, I picked it because that um, that intensity of experience was something I relate to, and it's absolutely embarrassing. And I get embarrassed watching the movie. I watched it again. I mean, the fantasy sequences are tough. I was wondering if anything was going to be tougher for me with age. Right. The fantasy sequences are a little tougher for me with age. Like the, I was totally in it in 1994. Um, today, but I love them. But uh, like, I love that. He does the thing with the sandcastle and the horses galloping up. They're big. They're broad. Big and broad and outsized, and they're people made of clay. And yep. He doesn't shy away from how silly they look and that early morphing thing that now looks terrible, but that at the time was kind of revolutionary. I get it, but it's also naive in a really interesting way. It's like if you were not a worldly person in 1954, you probably would think this was the height of culture. Right? Yeah, and it's it's a little tougher for me as an audience member nowadays, but it does, once again, side in with this notion of being a teenager also being sort of embarrassing. And, And also... And also putting you more firmly, you're so firmly, again, like Videodrome, you're so firmly in the, you're in their minds, you're in their world. It's about identification for me, too. Like, you know, you're identifying, it, the film is making you identify with them, which is a very difficult balancing act because these are murderers. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's bringing you along on this path of identifying with them. I mean, the other thing is, you know, something that rem- I find remarkable about Heavenly Creatures rewatching it was um, how much, like, a horror movie it is. Yeah. Um, like, um, actually when the lodger is, um, approaching, sneaks into her, her room at night, um, they do a Mike Myers shot. Um, he does like the Mike Myers Halloween point, point of, of view yeah. shot approaching. And I'm just like, there's all these little horror things he does. Um, these little horror flourishes that is so wonderful to see in a drama. Um, you know, and that's something that, that's the thing that I think was very influential on me. This kind of crisscross 
of genre and feeling free to do it and how these little these little horror things these little horror signals can actually make um a drama better or a drama or how drama can make a horror better but that kind of combination can be really potent is something yeah. going on in that movie yeah well you ground something in real emotion whatever the genre and it's going to play better right but with this it also really elegantly sets up the final moments while simultaneously reminding you all the all the time that you're in the hands of a kind of an untrustworthy dramatist because i know what peter jackson is capable of i've seen his other movies and there are people who'd never heard of him before and this was his art house debut right uh and when when it came to tiff in 94 he was coming as the you know the the midnight madness hero he'd already had two film maybe even bad taste played here i know i didn't see bad taste in a theater but i saw meet the feebles and brain dead at their midnight madness screenings and then two years after brain dead here he is with this and i'm all excited because it's a new peter jackson movie and the title promises something and then it started and i thought oh this isn't what i this isn't what i expected at all but it's still great it's just a different kind of great and all of his tendencies as a filmmaker his his swooping crane shots and his, his excitement his exuberance with the image they work here in a much smaller more precise way because the movie itself is sort of straining to burst out of its world the same way that that pauline and juliet are it's 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 a perfect marriage of, of filmmaker and material. And then you get all the other stuff in it that's fantastic as well. Like the drama, the sympathy, the empathy, the acting. It's just, yeah, it just blew me away. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, I mean, I had seen, um, I think going into it, I had seen Dead Alive, which was a huge fan. Um, and I hadn't actually, I don't, I'm not sure if I was a smart enough viewer to have, sought out the feebles and brain dead yet. I think I after, right after Heavenly Creatures, I suddenly sought out the rest. And they weren't easy to find at the no, time either. No, no. Piracy. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, there was no way to get, like... Um, yeah, no. Or, or it was, like, a, a VHS six times. Yeah, it, yeah. I, I mean, it may not have been piracy yet. It may have been, like, VHS tapes still. Right, like a watery old dog. Uh, yeah, like, with, like... The, I think I saw feebles on, like, VHS. Like, it said, meet the feebles and like, the VHS tape. Yeah. Um, that had been taped four times over, yeah. Um... It's got the static, those lines on yeah. the image. And then with the Feebles, it's like, it's already, uh, it's not a film that really pops. No, um, God, I would imagine, like, watching that on a dub would be like discovering the ring for the first time and just yeah. not really understanding what it is. Yeah, what is this? Exactly, exactly. I mean, that's how I saw, I think, Superstar as well, which was another... That's how everybody saw Superstar. That's how everybody yeah. saw Superstar. I think now it's on YouTube. Like... Oh, you know, as long as it's out there in the corner, in a corner somewhere, before someone takes it down, I yeah. think it does live kind it's of. A Superstar lives in those moving YouTube places. That's kind of amazing that the film, like the fate of a movie, could be from like just moving from IP to IP, like The Flying Dutchman. Yeah, I think that. I think I wonder how kids experience. I mean, you know, Heavenly Creatures being so big for me. I mean, but then when I was a kid, the movies that I saw were incredibly important for me, like in letting me know I wasn't alone as a person. Like you know, uh, Martin actually, Romero was a right. big one. Um, but uh, Henry actually was a big one. Um, yeah, Henry's something that I got from the trans. Uh, <laughs> that that was floating around in there. Yeah, yeah, no, it fell very much. Um, and uh, and uh, but these movies that I saw when I was a little kid, um, you know, I saw them because of WHT, which is like this home cable thing that my parents got. I wonder what how kids with the internet now. How do they? I mean, certainly not like. The kids in Heavenly Creatures. I mean, yeah, certainly yeah. who didn't have, again, who, as you point out, didn't have anything. Oh, they're operating in almost total isolation. Like, it takes five years for the third man to get to New Zealand. Um, <laughs> I think, or four. But it's it's one of those things where you're just thinking, oh, that's not a repertory cinema. That's the first time that movie has played there. Right. It's, it's this weird isolation, uh, and it's not even a metaphor. They are fully isolated from the world they have a couple of movie star magazines it's 1954 so rock hasn't happened yet there's there's like they're, they're listening if, to mario lanza <laughs> yeah two years later they probably would have been okay you know, like they would have they would have found something to occupy themselves but there's nowhere for them to go and there's nowhere for them to put this energy that they have and this attraction between them which um uh, uh parker and hume both insisted was never a thing they uh, supposedly that's the that's the major deviation from the real story they stuck to they use the journals those are actual journal quotes that we see and hear they stuck to the locations 
the place where I, I was telling you before, I, I dug up my interview with Peter Jackson from the festival from 94, and there's stuff in there that I'd completely forgotten. Like the, They shot the murder 100 yards from where it actually happened, because when they went to shoot it in the actual space, it didn't feel right. It just that wasn't quite either grim or bright enough. They couldn't get the right balance, so they just picked up and moved a hundred yards down the road and that's fair on the path, and that's where they shot it. But everything else, like the the place where Julian's mother has her last, sorry, where Pauline's mother has her last meal, was knocked down a couple of days after they shot that scene. But that was the real location. Wow. Yeah, they just the, everything was there at that moment. Fifty years later, yeah, or forty <laughs> years later, no, fifty, forty. 40 years later, I'm old. Uh, yeah, no, everything was there 40 years later, and they just, um, as much of it as was possible, they shot where they could. They shot where it, went, where it all was. And the one thing that they changed was that the relationship between the two of them is more explicitly uh, romantic, erotic. Right. Uh, Human Parker said that... So, so they basically say they never slept together. Yeah. they In court, apparently, Juliet said, how could we, we were girls? Um, just so either the mechanics of sex were completely unknown to her as she was describing it, or it really was repressed to that level where she just couldn't conceive of it. That's really interesting. I mean, it's an interesting moment in the film when they sleep together because I didn't think about this 22 years ago when I saw it, but I just rewatched it for this podcast. Yeah. And, um, so I watched it with notes out and, um, with my iPad out taking notes and, um, I did notice when they sleep together, that is sort of treated... I did notice that when they sleep together, that is sort of treated like a cliff that they... Literally the next scene, they're in the bathtub, and now the lights are dark, and now they're plotting murder. Yeah, the tone of the film changes completely. So, which is a kind of interesting, strange thing that once they have sex with each other, suddenly... Though, you could view it as, you know, um, it it was a cliff for them... So thereby, I don't know. It's kind. Of, it's getting into weird territory. That yeah. the second they sleep, the, the second they sleep together, they begin plotting the murder. Yeah, it's um, definitely a threshold that's been crossed. Right. right like exactly. Like an acceptance of, oh, what is it? There's this thing. It's not in this movie, but it it runs through every other horror movie. You know, like the defiance of natural law and the aberration. Right. And that, that's it. We've shown the society so looks down on this. That if we're breaking this taboo, right? Yeah. Let's, might as well. Now we're breaking taboos. Exactly. Yeah. So, and that is something that I love about um, films that capture this in terms of teen films, which is, to me, when I was a teenager, you don't get morality yet. Laws are something adults do. Yeah. And morality is actually, you're figuring out morality. Like, by the time I was, by like, by, you know, by like my mid-twenties, I had sort of assimilated into the morality of the rest of the world. But yeah. from 12 to 24, I was trying, and, you know, college is all about this. You, you go to protests. You, you're figuring, because that's, that's your, your morality trying to work in with the reality of what's out there. Yeah. And a lot of times you get angry because your morality doesn't feel like it makes sense with the morality that's out out there in the adult world. Yeah, and you see right so clearly. Yeah. Uh, and it takes a while for you to separate right and want. That's very insightful. Yes, that's you. good. Well, it's really easy when you're 21 to determine what everybody should be doing. Like, I remember that. <laughs> Exactly. I kind of still have that. And and I still feel like it's starting at at around 12 or 13 or 14 is the beginning of us formulating our kind of moral universe. Um, And so in a way, yeah, I mean, so I'm very empathetic. I really like these movies where kids are murderers because there is something that feels like outlaw-ish to being a teenager. Uh, I'm a big fan of Larry Clark's movies. Um, But, um, you know, like there is something... Where you haven't, you know, you, you'll, you'll eventually fit into society. But right now we're figuring this out on our own terms. Right. And, um, and I can see how that can go awry. Yeah. <laughs> that well, can go wrong. if the thing you want is beyond one obstacle, then it just makes sense to remove that obstacle. <laughs> and, again, they have absolutely no, like, plan is an insult. They just, they don't know what they want, except <laughs> that they want to be together. And they're so childish. And actually, removing the mother does nothing to help them. Right. Um, yeah. Which, you know... It guarantees that they never see each other again. I mean, that, that's <laughs> like... They just can't see past the the, the next move. Right. And even the next move is really vague and undefined. And the, the whole... The momentum of the film, as it carries us to it with them, to this awful thing that we've sort of teased at the very beginning. We've sort of... We've sampled it a little bit. He's dangled it out there. And... 
there's an edge it's just there's an edge throughout the entire film and it just gets sharper and sharper and sharper until it's a point and then you just oh god when it happens but they're not thinking about that they never think about the next step it's it's just it's about it's about what if like it's the imagining of of happiness and then in the end they can't distinguish fantasy from reality yeah so somebody has to go (laughs) it's awful Well, and there are the heroes in the narrative where, you know, this constant murder happening in their pretend narrative. I mean, but the parents, I mean, in the whole thing of how could this have been averted? Why did why did these kids murder versus other kids? And I mean, you know, the the film does the film does make Juliet's parents sort of the villains. Like and there's this moment where they where the father who's made a lot, who said a lot of stupid things and come up with a lot of stupid ideas through the film, comes over and says the faithful... Because this is something you brought from horror movies, which is this idea of you, you, you shout at a character, no, don't do that. I think any every horror movie that's worth its salt has at least one moment, if not more, where the audience screams at the screen, no, for Christ's sake, no, don't yeah. do that. And Heavenly Creatures has it. The father comes over to the other girl's house and he says... I think until we leave, it would be best if she moves in with us. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's not good. <laughs> and she's just like, no! What, yeah. what are you saying? We all, yeah, we all know where this is going. This is good. That's a terrible idea. These two kids are obsessed with each other. Let's have them move in together. That's the solution. And then we'll separate them again. Yeah. And you can almost see it like it's almost well-meaning. I mean, it is well-meaning, and it's almost well-intentioned because, of course, look how look how happy they are. And I guess if you're a parent in the fifties, there's not a lot for you to do with the children, so they'll they'll amuse each other. <laughs> Why not? It, it it's almost sensible, and so it's the great it's that great horror movie trick where oh, let's bring the mirror home. I'm sure the legends aren't true. <laughs> let's read and, from the Book of the Dead. Yeah, well, that one's always been that one always rings weird to me. It's like yeah, just just maybe don't. But oh, Jeepers Creepers has so many of those. Oh, that's where it's right. like, let's go follow them. Let's let's go down into the well. Like it, it, yeah. they, they're just really torturing you. You know that weird choice you're making. Let's make two more of them. Let's, <laughs> exactly. let's double down. Yeah. Let's double down the terrible choice we just made. Yeah. And then Wolf Creek has when she goes back. Oh, Wolf Creek. This is like one of the uh, you know this big moment where she gets out and she decides to go back to rescue the friend. Uh, right. That makes a whole movie out of that horrible yeah. choice. It's just Greg McLean going, look. You know, I don't feel you've suffered enough. Exactly. Let's, just, let's just keep going. <laughs> and, I, you know, I think um, Heavenly Creatures' murder is maybe one of, for me, one of the worst murders in uh, movie history. Uh, like oh, for it's me. horrible. It's horrible. The only other one I'd compare it to in terms of the, just the, like the protracted nature of it and how awful it is and how no one is into it. You know, like Even the killers aren't getting anything out of it by the end of it. It's just awful. Uh, Bernard Rose made a movie called Chicago Joe and the Showgirl, which no one remembers. Have you, Correct. Have you seen it? No, but Candyman is big, big on me. Yeah, you it was the one that out. between <laughs> Paperhouse and Candyman. Okay. And nobody knows about it. It starred Kiefer Sutherland and... Oh, my brain wants to say Virginia Madsen, but I know that's not right, so I'm going to look it up. While you look it up, yeah. was Paperhouse... I know it's supposed to be only one movie, but was Paperhouse the first movie where the ghost wants you to solve a mystery? Because, you know, he should just get royalties for that, because that idea has been <laughs> that idea has been triplicated so I mean so many times. The ghost is here to help. No, the, the ghost is scaring you, but really wants you to solve a mystery. I wonder. Because um, if it was the first, it deserves, you know, bu- buckets of cash. That does kind of make sense in my brain. I mean, yeah, maybe, I don't have an earlier one than Paper House. Yeah, like, maybe don't look now, but they're... That's your own mystery. Let's not the ghost help you. Uh, oh, sorry. Emily Lloyd, who okay. another person who should really have done more work than she did uh, from Wish You Were Here. Um, oh, God. That movie was amazing. And film. that's a movie that, should have, that yeah. should have more life than it does currently. Yeah. it's Again, it's rights, right? Something disappears and it's lost to, to the collective memory. If you can't immediately watch it, it may, not, it may as well not exist. Yeah. And Wish You Were Here was up there with, with this one for me. I mean, oh, it, was good. A, it was a good one. Yeah. Well, maybe not. Well, no, yeah. I liked it a lot. Great. I'm glad it, yeah. I'm glad it had that life for you. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Emily Lloyd's uh, next movie, I think, was or within two or three features. She was making this thing with, with Bernard Rosen. It's about a woman who is um, basically like a, she dreams of being a gangster's mall, a cigarette girl. And so she meets this guy who's sort of sort of cool. And we can tell it's more of a pose than anything, but she doesn't know it because she has no way to determine it. She's just not worldly enough. And they end up killing someone, but she doesn't die quickly it's a head wound and she bleeds and cries and becomes increasingly irrational and and incoherent and it's like it's i remember it it's been years since i've seen the film i remember it as a three or four minute sequence it just goes on and on and on and it's 
horrible. And that yeah. would have been 90 or 91. So yeah. that was in my mind when, when Heavenly Creatures finally gets to its point. But Jackson just does something completely different with it, which is that we're almost invited to celebrate it in a, in a really horrible way. Because we're yeah. still in the girls' heads. Like, we're still there. Uh, yeah, I mean, but I'm dreading it as an audience member. Like, in a way that I'm not necessarily dreading, you know, here's a famous murder, last house on the left. Um, in a way sure. that I, that just happens. Like, I'm not, in Heavenly Creatures, and it is a horrible murder, but in Heavenly Creatures, I'm dreading it. Like, when they, they, they go, oh, mom, let's take the mom out for a walk, and, you know, oh, and the, and she, and the cake, and she goes, yeah, treat, treat yourself. yourself. Which, is, like, which is delivered so beautifully with this knowing idiocy like she's just she thinks she's so clever and it reads beautifully i mean linsky and, and winslet are both just amazing and their first movie i still yeah. can't believe that yeah and, and just these incredible talents and yeah and you're on their side even when they're doing this absolute horrible thing in the worst possible way and just just screwing it up by being too smart and confident this, yeah. this is and there's this horrible moment during the murder when um, the mom reaches out to Juliet her hand for help because Juliet is reaching out and so the mom reaches her hand back and then Juliet takes the brick she's not she's not going yeah. to help the mom she takes the brick and she starts hitting and it's just a crushing horrible cruel moment and I mean the film is a little scared of how much it's, it's hitting you because they start intercutting it with the fantasy sequence on the boat. Right. And her not... And interestingly, her not being able to get on the boat suddenly. Suddenly the fantasy's changed to where instead of the cameras on the boat with her, now Melanie Linsky is not on the boat yeah, and they're screaming and crying. Right. So the fantasy... It's almost... The fantasy is... The fantasy is over. Mm-hmm. Like somehow in the murder, they, they even... They somehow know... I'm actually not... Yeah. I was we're going to ask you about what you thought of that because I think what you think it means. Yeah, I think that's some part of her that knows that what she's doing is irrevocable and that this is actually dooming them. That the right. relationship, she's she is feeling the separation before it happens. Already, she's like emotionally intuitive enough to know that this is a bad idea, even though she's perfectly happy to go along with it. <laughs> yeah, it's that so, it's that conflict of it's the conflict that's been going on through the entire movie of rational versus irrational right. uh, hope, and this is the moment where we did it. Oh my God, what do we do? We're still doing it. It's just this. It's the roller coaster. It's the emotion. Right. I think it's just what she's going. What she's going through. Her mind is. She's not disassociating from what she's doing, but she also knows exactly what she's doing for the first time. Because what I secretly think it is. Okay. No, I think you're completely correct, and it's accurate, and it's a wonderful explanation for me. What I secretly think it is is actually we have the murder scene, and then we have that fantasy sequence at the end. And then we cut to black and we get the title. Right. And they're in the editing room and they're like, this murder scene is just too too brutal. <laughs> this is just too dark. Yeah. And they're like, you know, like, I, I, the audiences aren't going to be able to watch this. And they're like, let's intercut it with that last fantasy scene to kind of soften it a little. Like, yeah. so we, we can cut away, you know, we can cut away from it a little. Because, you know, showing it, just just being on the path with them the whole time is just too much. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if it's true or not, but in my head, I was like, let's, let's, let's slide that. Let's slide that fantasy scene up and intercut it because okay. it's too it's too brutal. Like yeah. we need to cut to other stuff. We need to cut away because it's too brutal. I'm not sure that's true. Of course, I mean it's certainly possible, and it softens it in a way that also makes it worse, right? Because when you, every time you come back to it, it's you're even, back, you're back, you're even more, cutting back. Yeah, yeah it's, it's even true. more horrible. It, that's true. It does work on that on that yeah. level the same way. Yeah, cutting away and back. It's not. Yeah, it's nice. It's, it's true. Yeah. Um, I mean, when you said irrational and irrational, I thought of the opening sequence which is this sort of um industrial about the town right the the this documentary footage just for lack of a better term, right, right? Like, and then we kind of jolt cut to the legs bloody running in the woods and it's a very frenetic shot and that's kind of the rational versus the irrational it, it's like the proper the correct and then the raw the emotional yeah. the 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 adrenaline and that, yeah. that's kind of that's so it's like these two it's a contrast of these two things yeah the repressed British colony suddenly right. exploding into violence, which is that whole, you know, Mary Shelley Victorian repression thing. You can only push it down so far before it explodes, and the that's the thing that Jackson gets best, I think, as a, as a horror filmmaker. He knows exactly how far he's going to go, but he doesn't telegraph it. He just turns the knob up very, very slowly for a hundred minutes until you're there, and by the time it's the frog in the boiling water. Right by the time you get there, you don't even know how you got there (laughs) this all felt so pretty (laughs) everything was so nice and there was opera music and the third man and how is this happening Uh, um, how did we get here 
<laughs> and we got here through desire, which is how everything happens uh, in, in a tragedy. It's, I wish I could remember who said it first, but it, you know, like drama, the, the arc of drama is two characters who want something that is not the same thing. Whatever the thing is, they can't have it. Or it's not the same thing. Or they want each other and they can't have that. And Heavenly Creatures has all of those things. Like It plays every one of those levels. And just twists and twists and twists. And Yeah. The, it, it ends the only way it can. But it's a tragedy. Of course it was going to go there. <laughs> it's never not going to go there. It's one of the few... Um... It's one of the few front loadings that I don't hate because of the industrial and the like. Because currently in 2017, it has become a disease in cinema to show something exciting. You're so scared the audience is going to low interest. You can't have a slow burn. Right. You have to do something exciting at the opening. and then. But then since a lot of scripts don't have anything exciting at the opening. Like I put in a murder at the opening for this reason, but it's actually in the order of the film. Like so yeah. many movies just front load and then go three weeks earlier. And it's a cliche that drives me up a wall now yeah. when, when movies and TV shows do this because they're just so scared the audience doesn't have the attention span to just start in a house with a character. Like, we can't handle that. Like, we can't handle nothing happening for 20 minutes. Yeah. Um, so we have to do this ridiculous thing and then cut and say four months earlier. And, um, you know, The Heavenly Creatures is sort of doing that with the running, but actually it's organic. It's, and it's, it's actually kind of important to let you know What's coming at the end? Yeah, because your feeling of dread mounts as it goes, as it as it happens, which I guess is what all those other things want to do, but they're not doing it well. Right? No, <laughs> they're they're telling you exactly what's going to happen by showing you a scene. Heavenly Creatures gives you like a sample. Yeah. Um, I I I think it was me uh, back at the time. <laughs> I think it was me. I I had yeah that must have been. Um, I've been referring to it as a, a movie that induces a fugue state. It's the same state that the characters are in. Yeah, but well, that's, to, that's amazing. to get there, you have to. Yeah, you have to understand where it's going, and I don't know. Maybe there's a way to do it that doesn't tip its hand. Maybe there's a way to tell that story, and then suddenly, an hour in, realize where it's going. I mean, there are films like that. Sure, but I think this one, we need to know what level. To anticipate, I think you're right. The dread is important to get that fever pitch going. Yeah, I need to understand they're going to kill their the mother. Yeah, like for me, and that's going to happen. For me to have that, oh no, don't do it for that. No, no, moment for that for the moment where I'm dreading walking down the path. I need to understand they're going to kill the mother. Um, so yeah, no, I, and I and also it yeah it, it felt it felt organic. It didn't feel slapped on. It felt like an organic, important part of the movie, which is all that I need. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's um, so even though it's kind of a front loaded open, I, I, it's a it's a well done um, front loaded open the way it should be. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's, it was good. I was happy to see it twenty two years later and realize that I um, still loved it. Um, <laughs> that was um, that was that was a nice uh, that was a nice happy surprise for me. Yeah, it holds up real. I mean, other than the a couple of production limitations, I think it does hold up really, really well. It's just shocking to see how young everybody is. <laughs> I mean, it really. Oh, was Peter Jackson the guy on the street? I meant to Google that. I think he is in there somewhere. Yeah, yeah, they, they, I, I know where he is. Because right? now I know him because the Lord of the Rings. I didn't know him back when I saw it. Right. He, they, they, it's in the. Uh, there's a wonderful musical section of uh, to a Mario Le- Lanza. Yeah, Lanza. <laughs> Mario Lanza song. Um, where they sing, there's a lie. Like, they're singing the song, and it actually starts with her playing it in the house, but then it goes across, like, 20 different, like, locations and scenes. Because Peter Jackson's also making this sort of wonderful musical in some ways. Yeah, yeah. And so there's this wonderful musical number. They fall off the bike, and at one point they're leaving a movie theater, and there's a, there's a bum. And yeah. I believe he's sure it's Peter Jackson. I think so. I'm just sort of looking at them and reacting. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, well no, they grab him. She grabs him. That's kind of like he's dressed with like a hat and a dirty overcoat kind of thing. Yeah, and it's sort of their first intrusion. They're forcing themselves on people in a weird way that sets up the rest of it. True, true. So there's, yeah, it's thematic, it's appropriate, and it probably is Peter Jackson because of course he would be. Yeah, exactly. And they, um, I do, something else I made, I remembered that reminded me, there's also things that remind me of childhood a lot, which is of course appropriate because they're children becoming adults in the course of the movie. Mm-hmm. And something that reminded me of childhood a lot was the story that they're writing together 
and how they just are boring to tears the adults. They just, <laughs> they, they monologue, they make all the adults listen to their stupid story about the kid, and then they have the kid, and the, he's so difficult. Yeah. And they're making all the, and the adults just like are nodding and just like, oh my god, I don't want to be listening to this. Which is totally true from childhood. I, yeah. A, I did it as a child, and B, now that I'm around children, I, I hear creative children doing it like and i'm just like and i'm, and I'm the adult going uh-huh uh-huh yeah yeah it's really interesting uh, yeah, and uh want... they're totally doing it they do it like four times to adults in the yeah. course of the movie you want to encourage their creativity but <laughs> but and i hope that they'll learn to edit <laughs> we're, we're, we're eating dinner and they've just been talking about this for 20 minutes yeah yeah <laughs> and the, the, the solipsism of, of, of yeah of youth yeah. You know, when you think your ideas are the most, the best and most important ones. They think they're so brilliant, which is so true of being a teenager. You think you're so brilliant. They think they're so brilliant and interesting and exciting and entertaining. And, like, that's, it, it, and that's so true. I, I, I absolutely thought that way when I was a teenager. Yeah, well, um, we all did. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, that's, something he, that's something he gets. Like, that's yeah. something that, that Jackson unambiguously gets about them. And, uh, oh, the, the other thing now that I, I was trying to figure out where to mention it. Uh, the other thing that I found out in that interview that we did was that he said that he and, and Fran Walsh, who's who was really the, the the creative impetus behind this one, this was the movie she wanted to make, okay. the story she wanted to tell. Uh, they scoured the record, they scoured their journals. Yeah. They were trying so hard to find a reason, and there no. wasn't one. There was no trauma. There was no inciting incident. There was no reason that this should have happened. It just did. And they were completely normal kids who were maybe a little hyperactive and imaginative, but they looked and they couldn't find anything. So that made it worse and better because they had to build towards it organically in the script without actually doing a tipping point moment where I think that's probably why they ended up leaning on the romantic angle because it gives them the, it gives them the out. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, I think the truth is, which they may not, have understood but they ended up understanding and making the film is there it doesn't have to be a reason in that kind of sociological way yeah it's just being a kid can be the reason which is what's so terrifying you know like it's you don't have to they, you know it's why you shouldn't necessarily be trying kids as adults like because your 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 brain is wet cement still like yeah. you can screw up like you can do stupid things i mean and kids do stupid things all the time you can and it doesn't mean that you are necessarily a young Ted Bundy. And both of those girls weren't tried as adults, and both of those girls have lived normal lives of not dumping bodies in ponds. Yeah, yeah. So it goes to show you that, you know, this whole notion of... But I guess people that want kids tried as adults, it's, it's punitive, not... Yeah. It's, it's from a punitive point of view, yeah, not from a, a they're monsters point of view. It's a revenge mentality. Yeah, it's you revenge, mean, yeah. It's that, it's that impulse to believe that you can control the world by imposing punishment on people, which... I mean, you you can control people that way, but you can't actually control circumstance. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, I, there's 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 a lack of logic to children, and and in this, you know, and you know, a film I love, Larry Clark's Bully, which I remember the New York Times despised, um, but um, it has a similar sort of kids don't make sense. Like kids don't necessarily make sense. Like why do they murder that guy? Eh. Because yeah. they because he annoyed them, um, like and sometimes it just rolls out like that um, for some kids, yeah. um, and uh, that's 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 very powerful for me. Uh, that's that's a theme that I like a lot. Um, I didn't really do it; I was doing something different. But with my film, but it is some, something that I'm a big fan of. Yeah, well, the transfiguration definitely has the aspects of the magical thinking that kids do. Sure, like the, yeah, that the idea that you can explain anything if you. Um, if you force the explanation to make sense, yes, like the, exactly. that thing, that, the thing we can't do anymore, because we know that outside of our own heads that doesn't work. Right. Although we do it all the time. Yeah. The confirmation bias. Just, it's a ter- I, I say that Milo in the Transfiguration has just has confirmation bias. <laughs> like you know, he is a vampire. Since he knows he's he's at the end, result, he he understands he is a vampire. Period. Right. So all other reality. Must there like vampires must be this since he is a vampire? Right. right thereby, right. it's unrealistic for vampires to do this. Right. Because he doesn't do that. Because he and that is a perfect kid's point of view. All, right. all that matters is my own opinion and experience. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah tr- true. Um, yeah. 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 Um, so I, mean, uh, yeah. I, I do love that he's so dismissive of 
certain movies uh, as a and i also love and this is not a spoiler i promise to anybody who's listening he has a vhs tape of nadja that he found one i think that's so great i just picture him staying up all night trying to wait for it and tape it uh, people always ask me about the vhs is like why the vhs and i'm like because vampires like old things sure yeah i just assume he found it he got a collection somewhere that's also a lovely answer um but you know vampires like old things also a good answer i discovered vampires like old things is something that an audience wants sure. to hear they like they, you know do you want to hear answers within the narrative so mm-hmm. and so yeah but um yeah notch i i that, that was me by the way yeah i love notch oh um, yeah. I, I love michael Almerita. I, I also i have i worked with it was his, his editor uh, edited the movie for his oh, last cool. two films and i was just like what's he like <laughs> <laughs> i love Nadja. um and uh yeah, yeah no I, I saw Nadja back with uh with heavenly creatures um yeah they would have been around the same time yeah but, about and, the same year Possibly, maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah back we were when both at TIFF, definitely. Um, that's where I saw it. Um, I'm choking my notes. Oh, that's all right. My notes. It's. I love it when people come with notes. It just <laughs> shows commitment and preparation. The two best things. Oh, were they a real um, royal family? Were they using real royal family names or just making up royal family? I think that whole thing was invented. I so mean, it was all invented. I couldn't was, figure out if it was theirs, but it was it, right because the class. She goes. It said the royal family. It didn't have to be the Winchesters. She says. So so in first, yeah. So they're making up all. I think names. so. Yeah. I think they created their entire like the rubric of it. It feels like I, I was trying to figure out when uh, when the C.S. Lewis Narnia books were written because it feels like it would have come around the same time and germinated the same way. But maybe it's just a post-war thing where you know king and country, queen and country, everybody was rallying around images of royalty in the colonies, and that's just where it came from. Yes, well, there's this notion of revering them and the notion of them being disrespectful, which goes back to this notion of adults being sort of proper. The, yeah. the, the proper adults versus the emotional kids. Right, who believe that they are... I mean, ultimately, at the end of the movie, they're acting like gods and doing whatever they want. So they're clearly chasing that reverence for themselves, and it's, right. it's that reflected glory thing that's going true. on. That's true. It's just it's such a smart screenwriting point that that Walsh and Jackson know them so well. Like this is really everything is about you when you're that age, and I, this is so about them. I think they really. Yeah, I mean, I have journals from when I was fourteen that I've kept. So I've somehow been able to keep through all my years, right. and um, I'm terrified of reading them because of how embarrassed I'm going to be. I would be sure, yeah. Uh, but I know that they sound like her. I mean, <laughs> I, I can tell you already they sound like her. And um, I, I am, which is why I'm not opening them. Um, and, um, but um, I think that what Jackson, what Walsh and Jackson did was they really listened to what her journal entry sounded like. And they didn't let, and they, 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 made, they made that the core of the movie. Like right. that, that, that feeling, what she's saying, became becomes the core of the movie. Like yeah. all, all their choices come from how are we true to this voice? Yeah, this, um, this voiceover that they use. Yeah, feverish megalomania. That yeah, <laughs> exactly. Why can't we just be left alone? And that is like that's every teenager again. It just it feels it's so it's like an obscene exaggeration, but it's totally normal when it's in when you're in the moment when you're when you're in their heads. Like the movie does this beautiful job of trapping you in that state. And there's no way out. Yeah. But but what they did. Um, and then you know, it's it was a very it's a very sad movie for me. Twenty two years later, see this is bad because normally when I do when I do when I talk in a public way, I'm never negative. Okay. But I'm gonna I'm gonna let myself. I'm gonna treat myself. So uh, I'm gonna treat myself here. Interesting I, choice of words. Go on. <laughs> I'm gonna treat myself to being negative, and uh, which is it, there's a sadness for me for Heavenly Creatures because this is the last time I'm going to enjoy a Peter Jackson film. Okay. <laughs> This is it. It's 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 one. It's actually my favorite film of his. I love Meet the Feebles. I love Bad Taste. I love Dead Alive. But you know, when he goes to the hundred million range, I'm out. Like okay. so, for me, you know, and I'm, I wasn't. I wasn't a Tolkien fan. So him doing twenty seven parts of a Tolkien thing, it yeah. wasn't for me. So I mean, you know, and uh, Lovely Bones just didn't hit for me for whatever reason. I wish it did. Wow. But um, yeah. and but I really wish it did because he was he was kind of going back to this territory in a way. It's very similar in completely the wrong way. Yeah, like it's, it's he, he didn't learn what was good about <laughs> Yeah, it just makes you feel that. Yeah, I mean, I, I I was I was so disappointed by the Lovely Bones because I oh I wanted it to work. I I, yes. I get the material. I know what he's trying to do, and it just goes so far sideways. I haven't been so disappointed since Lost Boys. 
I know there are people that love Lost Boys, but for me, I'm like teen vampires. I'm like teen vampires. Oh my god, teen vampires! How cool is that? Like, of course, I'm saying that. Sure, like, yeah. I'm saying that as a kid, and then I go to the movie and I get a Corey and Corey movie. I get a Corey and Corey detective movie instead of hanging out with Kiefer Sutherland and like killing people at the carnival, which is which is all I want. And I think when people say they love the film, they're remembering the Kiefer Sutherland stuff, and you know, they're not remembering that. No, no, no. Eighty percent of that movie is the two Corys solving a mystery or whatever. Like, yeah, it's. It's, it's definitely that. <laughs> so, so lovely boats. So yeah, it's like those are the two biggest. You know, seeing lovely boats and the lost boys. So yeah. um, well, near dark at least gives you that teen vampire thing with a different, like an edge to it, with where you you sort of deal with the idea that it would be absolutely horrible. And and they, they, they give you the bar scene, but, yeah. which Lost oh, Boys never delivers to me. If, if Lost Boys gave me that bar scene from Near Dark where they murder everyone in the yeah. bar, I mean, but Lost Boys has to be PG, so they can't give me that. Yeah. Uh, but my, my, the bar scene in Near Dark is just oh my, that's that's great stuff. Yeah. It's um, amazing that those things happen in the same window of time. Just that those two radically different treatments of of vampire <laughs> mythology, both of which are sort of non. Uh, non-denominational in in terms of <laughs> right. the, the iconography and how things work, that they should be within months of each other is so strange to me because they don't belong in the same universe. Like the Joel Schumacher Dayglow backlit blood and guts sax man sax sax man, man on Santa Beach Boardwalk that poor guy. <laughs> they even threw in because this is my my secret shame is I did the Lost Boys two junket. I was I went out to, or not the junket I went out to the set. Uh, for when I was writing for MSN Canada, I, fl- I flew out to Vancouver to do a set report on uh, Lost Boys: The Tribe, which you know isn't very good, but and and nobody's fault. It just it's a movie that nobody needs, a sequel that shouldn't exist. But they sort of touched the sax guy was in it, or they got someone, they got an old middle aged sax guy, sax guy, to be performing in a single shot in the film just to show you the continuity between the two films and it's just like no guys I get what you're doing but you're just reminding us how old and pitiful this thing is 20 years later I, I ate at a burger place and they um, the guy I got into a long conversation with the guy about uh, Toronto and Toronto being used as a Toronto being used as a uh substitute for New York because oh, of the yeah. tax credit and the, the long history of films that do that and I was like well my favorite is Friday the 13th Jason Takes Manhattan that's right um, but he that was immediately... Vancouver though what? that was Vancouver that was Vancouver oh, oh okay so, so yeah, but they his... needed a coast they needed a port right, right. his favorite was um... so, okay so I... oh, correction uh, his Sorry. favorite was uh, Short Circuit 2 in terms yes. of unneeded sequels yep <laughs> that's a good one I got another one uh, one of the Death Wishes 4 or 5 was shot here <laughs> And it's supposed to be set in New York, and they used the same intersection, but each corner differently. They try, they dressed each corner as different parts of New York. <laughs> it's Bay and Queen uh, to make it look like you know Midtown and Lower Manhattan, and then a different part of Midtown. And it's the like if you just if you know the city, it's like oh you're standing opposite from five blocks away. Yeah, it's supposed to be. It's the same That's a ten foot radius. It's I amazing. love that. Yeah, I think it's called the face of death. I kind of want to see all the death wishes again. Uh, no, don't do it. Don't no, do it. they're terrible. Uh, it's just um, is one an old age home though. I want to see the old age home one. I think that's the sixth one. <laughs> Um, is there a sixth one? I don't even know anyone. But I want to see the old HO one. Oh. I, I feel like I think I think that one might be the camp. Are you classic. sure that's not just a Simpsons episode? <laughs> <laughs> but was Enemy Toronto because Enemy uh, Enemy the, the Hall film? Yeah, Vin, yeah, that was actually set in Toronto. Uh, no, no, I mean I, I was, was gonna, I, 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 I want to make sure I was correct so I could say I feel Enemy was such a breath of fresh air for making Toronto. It was just after years of Toronto pretending to be other cities, yeah. Toronto gets to be Toronto. And he really cares about showing the city. Though it is this strange, like, milky white, spite, giant spider kind yeah. of industrial, like, thing. But he's looking at Toronto and making it a real location for once, which yeah. is like, really nice. Yeah. There's a handful of recent movies that do that. The F Word does it, too. Or What If, I guess, in the States. Uh, Daniel Radcliffe and uh, Zoe Kazan. But it's shot here and set here, and mostly in the East End, but it's a different part of the city, and it just turns into this romantic comedy playland which is really Ooh, sweet I'd love to see that yeah it's really I, cool. I like movies that use location like that's a it's a really nice it's it's something that I, it's, it's something that movies don't do enough mm-hmm. and the problem when you're trying to set something in Toronto when you're setting something in Toronto it's supposed to be somewhere else the reason I don't like it isn't anything to do with Toronto it's that now you're you're not you're not exploring your location anymore because you're trying to cheat. Everything's a cheat, so right. your frames suddenly become really. Let, there's no personality or character because the whole point is you're trying to take personality and character out because right. you want to just look like generic. Yeah, because you don't want to look too unique like its own space. So it's the opposite of how you can use location in film, which is very frustrating to me because location is such a wonderful 
layer to a movie yeah. when, when a film uses location well. Well, like, I mean, you're using parts of Queens that almost never get <laughs> shot in. Right? Yeah, because it's self-serving for you to say that. Oh, yeah, well, but you, know. you are. It's the Rockaways, right? I mean, yeah, that's, it's you, the Rockaways. You never see that. People yeah. go to Coney Island. <laughs> and that's supposed to be... It's not that it's more glamorous. It's just that that's the thing that people think of when they think of... And, Beaches near New York. And I ended up shooting in Coney for oh, yeah. a scene. Uh, there's a scene towards the end of the film they go to an amusement park together. Oh, I... Really? I just thought they all looked the same. <laughs> yeah, they... Because well, I've never been to the Rockaways. Um, you know, we, the Rockaway doesn't have an amusement park. Uh, there's a whole thing where they borrow the car... He, he borrows Lewis's car and they drive it and then, like, you know, yeah, the editing room I'm trying to get from two and a half hours to 90 minutes and I'm like, what if they just... We just cut to the park. What if they don't get in a car and drive... What if we don't cover how they got there? What yeah. if we just cut to an amusement park and what if it's only 20 seconds? Because um, that's how you get a movie... That's how you cut an hour out of a movie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you make little choices like that. Brutality. <laughs> Horrible, but uh, uh, but Heavenly Creatures uses actual locations right. for historical value as well as that weird detached eeriness of New Zealand, where everything like New Zealand doesn't look like anywhere else in the world. Uh, you keep seeing it. I mean, you keep being confronted with it. There's stuff in like Alien Covenant that was shot in New Zealand that is so clearly, you know, West Hobbiton or something. I think it's <laughs> it's sculpted trees in these weird shapes of the the hills look different and. So much of Christchurch was an attempt to just be British that didn't take. Right. Uh, so you have this weird alienation thing going on. Uh, and then one of them actually is British, and that's considered yeah. to be this higher... I mean, the way class plays out in the movie is Very something I made a note to that I was very happy about. I wasn't thinking about class a lot when I was... I was thinking about, of course, being a proper 22-year-old, I was thinking about right and wrong a lot, but I wasn't necessarily thinking too deeply about class, and watching Heavenly Creatures again, I was like, oh, class is huge in this movie. Oh, yeah, Julius' parents assume that they are right about everything and that everything they say is law. <laughs> They're just looking at the peons, the, the, the natives. But also Pauline is looking up to Juliet right. so much. Like, yeah. Yeah, Juliet, and Juliet enjoys being looked up upon like you know that's that's the foundation of the relationship is how much pauline loves juliet looks up to juliet and juliet loves being looked up to yeah um is, is a big foundation of their dynamic and then of course the the dynamic between the two families as well and having juliet over and they're they're renting to borders because they need to make money and you know and she's just embarrassed of her family with having juliet over because they you know they're not as fancy as juliet's family mm-hmm. and of course they they worship juliet's parents even though Juliet's parents are sort of terrible. <laughs> but they, they worship them because they're fancy or they're English. I don't know. Like, you know, like, well, they are. They're, they're exotic, if nothing else. There's, they're, they're the most interesting people because they are novelties. Right. And, and even Juliet worships her own parents, even though they're horribly disappointing yeah. to her all the time. Yeah. Um, I wonder how much of that is subjective, too. Like, are we seeing it from their perspectives? And if so, of course, the girls are disgusted by their parents because, oh, they don't get it. You know, they have to act like this all the time. I'm sure things weren't that bad in, in the Reaper household. Uh, but they have to be for us to be on their side, for us to be on the girls' side when they justify what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, and also I think, like, I keep bringing up Video Drums because it's my, my other favorite film. Um, but, I mean, you know, I think reality, directorial reality, is shaped by our lead character's point of view. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I think I think it's it's not just to help with the audience. I think it's it's yeah, it's because he's taking that liberty of you know they're the only real characters in the world in a yeah, way. Everyone yeah. else is a kind of Baz Luhrmann exaggeration. Yeah, they're or a construct, like a literal construct, which we see in the fantasy sequences. Um, so yeah, so we touched on it a little bit, but I I wanted to ask the final question on the podcast, which oh. is always the same, which is you know what of Heavenly Creatures, if anything, have you borrowed or stolen or quoted or or sort of sampled into your own creative DNA? Oh, um, I mean, I, and I've already talked about it a little bit. A little I bit, mean, yeah. um, I mean the um, the obsessive teenage thing. Um, I mean, capturing that and capturing what it's like to be obsessively of first love um, and first teenage love, I totally, you know, marked into that when I was when I was younger when I saw it, and I totally took it into my own writing. And the other huge thing that I didn't even understand necessarily when I rewatched it was taking horror again, which is something I mentioned earlier. It's taking horror touches and um, taking horror flourishes and placing it into your drama. Or taking your drama and placing it into horror. Right. And that kind of merger, which I, you know, I should have realized, because I had seen Jackson's early work, and Jackson's working in horror to some degree. And um, and he's taking these horror flourishes and placing them inside a drama, and that it's very effective. 
And there is a lot of, there is a fair amount of murder in Heavenly Creatures. You don't realize it's in all the fantasy sequences. Like yeah. the, the psychiatrist gets, gets a sword through him. Like he kills people, you know, pretty consistently yeah. for a horror movie. Just it's in a fantasy. So yeah. you think it's like, oh, it doesn't count. And it's in that enthusiastic Peter Jackson way that's fun. Like you're, <laughs> right. you're, you're invited to enjoy that stuff. Yeah, so exactly. that when you're confronted with real horror at the end, it's absolutely shattering. And, and that notion of merging two different sort of languages, language of drama, and language of drama might actually, there's no language of drama, it's just taking, it's just maybe the idea of taking character and dialogue very seriously. Right. Like, it's you that, know. It's that tone, it's the thing that we recognize. Yeah, I mean, and, but merging that with some horror tropes, with some horror language, can be very powerful and effective. And I try to do that, and I then try to do that twenty two years later. Right. So I definitely, and I, but that was definitely something that I um, subconsciously took from Heavenly Creatures. I mean, I, I knew, I knew, I know to credit other films with that that are merging horror and drama, but I didn't, I didn't completely understand in my memory that Heavenly Creatures had done it so well okay. until I understood the language a little better. Well, I mean, when again, you know, that Halloween shot, like, and, and also, I mean, the fact that the other characters are done with a sort of broader touch is actually a little bit. The broader touch is a kind of a horror touch to me. Um, right. It's because it's the because it's the touch that he applies to his other characters in Dead Alive, for example. Like it feels like it's not just Boz Lerman these outside the adult characters. They also feel a little like they could be in Dead Alive. I mean, one of the women is actually from Dead Alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And she's giving a similar performance of like professor, like ah, like that sort of stern thing that she. Yeah, does. she's doing this kind of exaggerated reality yeah. kind of thing. Um, so yeah, no, it was that. It's that merging of genre that um i think is, is something that i took from it okay and so as far as the transfiguration how do you want people to approach it we haven't really discussed too much about it and I, i'm trying not to okay I, good i think we should i think it's fun i've been it. talking about transfiguration for a year when i found out that i could do a podcast where i talk about someone else's movie <laughs> it was just so it was such a joyful response i had oh i can't wait to talk about someone else's movie that's kind of the, the appeal i find like people <laughs> like i'm trying to convince people to put this in the middle of a press day to just sort of break up the energy yeah, exactly it's, it's a wonderful it's a wonderful thing to do oh i'm glad but so as far as the transfiguration goes what do you want people to know about it going and how would you want to what what mood do you want to set if anything um, you know, the problem is you have to sell a movie, so you have to tell people something that excites them and wants them to see it. But I, I want people to know nothing. You know, in the perfect artist world, right. everyone just sits down and they turn. They're in a theater yep. with surround sound, with a gorgeous screen, and they don't know anything about it. And like people ask me to intro the film, and they they want you to say a few words, right. and I'm always like, well, my name's Mike. I'm really happy to be in the city. The theater's gorgeous, and I hope you enjoy the film. Thanks for coming, because I don't want them to know anything and you know Todd Salons I saw introduce um, Wiener Dog and he said it's a comedy it's okay to laugh and I'm like your film's supposed to do that you can't show up to every screening and say it's a comedy you're supposed to laugh like you gotta you gotta let them just it's just gonna be out there you're gonna they're gonna do what they do like I I don't um, I don't like the idea of context with movies and with art like I like the idea of um, it just existing on its own but Obviously, um, how about if you like Martin and Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer and uh, you, Larry Clark movies, you you and uh, you know and Safi Brothers movies? Yeah. Like it's kind of like, like that's kind of the that's, that's like the five things I took in, in the, and threw into the soup. So if you, if you like all those movies, but but if you like only Safi Brothers movies, you should probably also like Henry. <laughs> like you probably shouldn't only yeah. like the Softy Brothers movies. That's you might true. you might be disappointed. You might be upset that. Can I introduce you to this other thing? Exactly. Yeah. You, maybe you should like horror and art films, and then you should be good with my movie. Maybe hopefully you'll like my movie. But you, know, you never know. But it's about a kid who thinks he's a uh, he's a vampire, or he is a vampire. Right. Because I'm a big fan of cat people. <laughs> Either he is a vampire, or he thinks he's he's a vampire. Yeah. Well, it's equally possible. Yes. How about that? Both truths are possible. Both yes. both explanations are possible. It's... I mean, there's a journey the audience should go through in the movie about whether they think he's a vampire or not. Uh, any audience member should probably take that journey. Um, that I am maybe spoiling right now, but um, you know, regardless, people read so much stuff on the internet that like it's yeah. my 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 imaginary world of you're in a theater and you have no context is just ridiculous. Like, but um, but you know, it's pretend. But um, but no, I mean, audiences hopefully have their own journey with the fantastic watching the transfiguration and deciding whether or not he's a vampire while they watch it. Um, someone came up to me after a screening though and was like, can you help me? My girlfriend thinks he's a vampire and I don't think he was. So which one of us is right? And I'm, and I'm like, I, I'm like, 
I don't want to. I don't want to be a. I don't want you to think I'm a jerk. Yeah. But I would prefer. I think it's so wonderful that you came to different conclusions. Yeah. And I would prefer to leave it like that. Yeah. What if you're both right? Right. Blow their minds. (laughs) Can't you both be right? Yeah. I mean, Heavenly Creatures is not an ambiguous film. No, no, I didn't take that from Heavenly Creatures. (laughs) I did not take ambiguity from Heavenly Creatures. I took that from Cat People, which I decided not to bring onto this podcast because I don't know enough about. I don't know enough about anything. I don't know enough about Val Luton. (laughs) I never saw the zombie one. So, I, but I, I would have otherwise. Cause I do love cat people. That's a good one. It's yeah, it's great. And not the for people that don't know, not the Paul Schrader one with Natasha Kinski, the nineteen forty four one. That one's good too, in a, yes. in a very different way. Very very different way. Uh, no, I mean I, I'm a big fan of Brisson. Me and Paul Schrader both share that that mm-hmm. we both love like Pickpocket and we both love the Brisson's movies. Yeah. But no, I'm not. I was not influenced by cat people. The Paul Schrader one. <laughs> Oh, it's great on its own. Yeah. You're right. It has its merits. It does. It does. My thanks to Michael O'Shea, whose excellent first feature, The Transfiguration, is rolling through theaters in North America right now and coming to your favorite on-demand service in August. As you could probably tell, I really enjoyed it. Check it out when you have the chance. Mike's not on Twitter, but his movie is at transfigmovie, all one word, and you can find Heavenly Creatures on Blu-ray and DVD from Lionsgate in the U.S. and E1 in Canada. It doesn't seem to be streaming anywhere, which makes me sad. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, that would be very kind of you. And if not, we'll always have Barovnia. Thanks for listening. <laughs>